we have a quadrant chart. And at the lower left corner, it's all about me right now. And in the upper right-hand corner, it's about the community or the country, you know, as large as you can get, but looking both long-term into the future and across the community well beyond yourself and your own individual interests. And the more you can encourage people around you to think not how do I get to the end of this, but how do I become the beginning of something beyond what I'm doing now. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When you look at health and wellness from a global perspective, well, you kind of have to remove the rose-colored glasses. It's not as rosy as one would think. There are a lot of gaps, a lot of opportunities to make it better. And that's where things like philanthropy come in. And so Lauren Kelly Chu, head of clinical product, and Esther Dyson, a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, and one of our investors in Levels, the two of them sat down and they discussed this idea about the cross-section between philanthropy, health, and wellness. It's one of those things that when taken into account, it can be a strong lever for helping to create a movement. It's something that takes time, but it's something that you need voices, you need advocates to undertake. So the two of them sat down and they discussed this idea in depth. Here's Lauren. Well, thank you again for chatting with us and for being an investor in Levels. It's really our honor and we feel so supported to know that we have people like you on board. Your parents were scientists and you started your career as a fact checker at Forbes. And you've said your superpower is asking questions, which I think has to be one of the best superpowers that there is, if not the best. Have there been one or two questions that you've asked that have completely changed the direction of your life or career? And what were they? One was just, why are we spending so much money trying to fix people when it would be so much cheaper and, and nicer for everybody? and produce better results. We just kept them healthy. And that was when I kind of moved from investing in healthcare to figuring out how to invest in health. And it turns out it's pretty hard to find a business model for that. So I ended up starting a nonprofit project, the goal of which is to inspire other people, both to do similar things in their communities, but also to inspire people to vote and politicians to vote for and create laws and funding mechanisms. We look at health as a collective asset the same way we look at physical infrastructure, human infrastructure is even more important. While we're on that topic of, of Wellville, maybe we'll take this as an opportunity to just learn a little bit more about it. If you're willing to share some of the evolution and then where it is today. Oh no, it's secret. Somebody's <laughs> gonna steal our idea. <laughs> Let's hope so, right? That's the goal. Exactly. Basically, it was originally five years, five metrics, five communities. And honestly, originally I thought I would try and raise money for it, but I ended up getting really lucky in the stock market. Not so much this last few months, but lucky enough that over time, I was able to fund it all myself, which gives you so much freedom because if you 
if you raise money, you raise it in one or two year chunks. You have specific things you have to do. And I, I come from the VC and, and startup world where you have a goal or a problem, but then you block and tackle because the first idea you had of how to solve it turns out not to be right. And you learn as you go. So we've been on this amazing learning. We, the team at Wellville, which is six people, have been on this amazing learning journey. And we learned a ton even before COVID. And then COVID came and kind of, in a sense, it both did what a lot of people talk about. It revealed the disparities and, and was a tragedy for many people. But it also gave people permission to try new things and to start over. And it gave a lot of people the ability to say, we're going to do something different without having to apologize for the past. One reason people don't change is because they don't want to admit they weren't perfect originally. And so this, in a way, it's, it's been very freeing. Let's build back better. Not my original term, but a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, so fundamentally what we're doing is we are, we're like coaches for the communities. We don't give them money, but they don't pay us. In fact, we don't have contracts with them. If they don't want to listen to us, they really don't have to. So it's much more like raising children. You're trying to foster people's intrinsic motivation to do the right thing. And if your advice is good and compelling, they'll follow it. But they're not going to do stuff just to please you, which is what many community organizations do all day long because they're trying to please the people who give them grants, even though they might think the project is kind of stupid. You now it funds the part-time coordinator and pays overhead. What we're trying to do is not give them fish or even teach them how to fish, but to help them build their own fishing schools okay. for their own kind of fish. And when we leave two and a half years from now, it's they've built something for themselves. We're not giving them a gift, but we've helped them build their own infrastructure, build their own sustainable institutions. And believe me, the job's not finished when we leave, but they have the capacity to carry it on. And I mean, I've kind of adopted, maybe that's the wrong word, but I, Muskegon is now yet another place that I feel really at home in. Muskegon's the community that I work with. The others are Lake County, just north of you in California, Clatsop County, northwest of Portland, Oregon, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and North Hartford, Connecticut. In case anybody listening comes from one of them or is nearby. Yeah, it's such a refreshing and inspiring model. And I'm from Pittsburgh, which is often also an overlooked city in some way. Yeah. So I really appreciate now that I live in the Bay Area when people from the Bay Area, from tech or who have the resources spend, take the attention to look at these communities where really there's much less attention and the need is there. Well, one of them was Scranton, was almost Scranton. So 42 communities applied. Our CEO, Rick Rush, and I visited 10 of the communities. One of them was Scranton and for a bunch of reasons, we didn't pick them, but then two years later, David Feinberg showed up from UCLA and he's now gone on to both Google and Cerner, but Scranton became a really interesting community with 
doing many of the same things. So it was kind of like a sixth Wellville and I joined their advisory board and so forth. So I know many people from Scranton, so I, I appreciate that. I'm curious, you mentioned that this was a very different funding model in the sense that you were able to self-fund it, which created quite a bit of, it sounds like flexibility and really to be able to say, this is what makes sense. This is what we're going to do right. versus, right, versus the, the forcing function that so often comes with venture investment or nonprofit investment or whatever the source might be. As you look to the future and, and hopefully this model will be replicated in, in some way and, and kind of spread into other communities, where do you see the funding coming from? to be able to have that flexibility? So honestly, I don't see a whole lot of people doing what we're doing exactly. Mm-hmm. It reminds me totally different, but another thing that changed my life was this trip to Russia with, of all people, Jack Dorsey. It was a sort of government-led tech tour trip. And he had the the guy from the government had a friend who was in the acting business who was doing a film shoot and then the film shoot canceled. So this guy came along too. And his name was Ashton Kutcher. If you've ever been chased <laughs> by screaming girls, right next to <laughs> Anyway, Ashton Kutcher did his, his very best Steve Jobs imitation talking to a bunch of students in Novosibirsk who a surprising number of them had said they wanted to emigrate to the U.S. because people in the U.S. Are, smile a lot and they work hard and they're happy. Ashton Kutcher said, you can smile a lot right here. You can be happy here. You can build things here. You don't need to go to America. And I can't, I mean, it was Ashton Kutcher, not me or Steve Jobs. But it's sort of the same message. You don't need a bunch of people from outside giving you advice. You can actually do it for yourselves, which is half true. But the other half is it needs to be easier for small communities that don't have a lot of grant writers to get the government funding. Because in even in Pittsburgh and certainly in Newark and Oakland, there's all these people who know how to write the grants and kind of nab the money as it comes down from the federal coffers. And the school systems, the childcare, the healthcare, all these, what should be, again, public assets are underfunded and inadequate. So the real funding model is we as a society need to realize that we need to invest in our people, not just in our bridges and our roads, but giving a community the capacity to do that, giving kids the sense of agency, which I'll come back to when we talk about CGMs and so forth. I think so much of where we are with health and healthcare, and like you said, there's a distinction between them, is really about trying new things because we know that what we're doing right now isn't really working in general. So I, I so admire this approach that you have. Yeah, we actually, we do know what works. We just don't do it. And that's both we in terms of what we're funding, but also we as individuals. I mean, everybody knows they should sleep more and Mm-hmm. eat less processed sugary food and get more exercise. But it's it's hard to think ahead. It's hard to feel that there's a point. It's hard to have this sense of agency. You just feel so beleaguered by everything. And it's creating communities where kids have that positive experience rather than being understimulated, not by drugs, but understimulated by loving parents and 
effective childcare and being fed toddler milk, which is a disgrace to humanity. It's, it's sweetened milk that destroys your teeth and your metabolism. So it's somehow changing the, we talk about training AIs all the time, and we need to talk more about training babies, not to be robots, but to be curious, excited, long-term thinking kids who feel they, they make a difference in the world, who love their parents and are loved. Absolutely. And I'm curious from your perspective, having worked within communities, having coached communities, are there things that everyday people, like something that I can do that helps to start create this, to create this change, even in the absence of being formally involved, let's say with a specific initiative, but just ways that I can start to begin to change the tide on some of these things? Well, from everybody according to their abilities to each according to their needs, it sort of depends where you are and what you do. I mean, you can, you can do everything from volunteer in your own community to funding. Again, the real issue, we, I did come from business. We have a quadrant chart and at the lower left corner, it's all about me right now. And in the upper right-hand corner, it's about the community or the country, you know, as large as you can get, but looking both long-term into the future and across the community well beyond yourself and your own individual interests. and the more you can encourage people around you to think not how do I get to the end of this, but how do I become the beginning of something beyond what I'm doing now? You know, how do I build something that will, it's the difference between investing where you create assets that keep producing value one way or another and spending, which just means spending on immediate, again, spending on repair rather than investing and an oil change every year keeps the car healthy and healthy living every year keeps the body healthy in the mind. Yeah. We'll link to your quadrant chart as so that people can, can look and see, but I think it's such a helpful way, a framework of thinking about this, both like you say, on the individual level in terms of the way that we choose to spend our time and our resource energy, and also from a high level in terms of how we're thinking about this as, as a collective. I'm curious, well, first of all, really glad that we went down that road in terms of the questions that have, have really altered your career because it's, uh, I think it's such a good thing to, to start with basically what was the curiosity and then where did it take you? And it's so interesting to hear your story. If we think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, are there specific questions that you ask yourself daily or semi-regularly that help you prioritize how you spend your time, your resources, your energy? Yeah. I try to do this well. I mean, sometimes I get overwhelmed and I sort of want to answer to everybody. I am not a public resource. I got to focus on the things I've committed to, not on everything. I mean, that's one important point. You know, whatever you do, do that effectively. Don't get too distracted because your job is not to fix the world, it's to fix your part of it where you can have the most impact. And I mean, in the end, your job is also to be a human being and love people and stuff like that. I mean, you need time off and so forth. So I swim every day for 50 minutes. I've been doing that more or less since I was 18. And that is when I do that. Oh, what did I do wrong yesterday? What did I learn from it? What am I going to say on the podcast today? What 
we're doing a, Wellville is having its annual kind of workshop gathering thing in May. And we're constructing some of the workshops now. So what are we going to do in this workshop? And just, it's my parking lot for just about everything. So the, the questions will vary, but they're, yeah, the attempt is, well, what do I need to deal with today? What am I going to get out of this meeting? Do I really need to do that other thing? That's when I decide that second trip to California just doesn't make sense, or this is what I want to get out of that call. Um, you know, and it, it will partly depend on what's on the schedule, short-term and long-term, but it's what makes it valuable is I don't have pen and paper. I don't have email to distract me. Just like get a little out of the daily hustle. And you know, whether you do it running or in the shower, swimming is actually one of the better ways to do it. But it's that daily just... Are you on your path or are you being distracted? Did you come naturally to that ritual when you were about 18 or was that something you decided, I want to move my body every morning or I want to swim every morning? Oh, no, it was, it was totally, I mean, I loved swimming. I learned swimming when I was four years old. And when I get water at my nose, I still remember Walnut Creek, which is <laughs> the pool where we learned to swim when we lived in Berkeley. There was a swimming pool in my dorm and you didn't even have to wear a bathing suit. So it was extremely convenient. And I just got into the habit and realized how wonderful it was. And I wish there were some way that I could help mm -hmm. everybody do that because it's such a blessing. But I mean, the fundamental thing is I don't decide to swim every day. I figure out how, and if you, so one of the team members at Wellville used to work for me as my executive assistant back in the nineties. And if you ever get her alone, she'll tell you stories about calling up hotels and asking for their swimming pool hour. And so it's, you know, sometimes it's somewhat inconvenient, but the trick is, again, if you talk to habit forming people and so forth, you say, I am a swimmer, not I must swim. It's part of your identity. It's part of, well, you know, you get up in the morning and you find the pool and with luck you found it the day before. So you know where to go <laughs> and the hours work and so forth. But it was not quote intentional. I mean, I honestly, I really didn't expect to live beyond 30, not because I expected to die, but just because my perspective wasn't that far out. When did that change when you started thinking beyond 30? Oh, I mean, I don't remember. It wasn't, you know, it, but it's, I mean, in some ways I've always thought long-term because I think about space travel and civilization and so forth, but I wasn't focused. I did have a career goal of being the Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. But it was, it was like all these things. It was something to do, but it wasn't a destination. It was more like a direction. 
It's so interesting. And, and just to go back to swimming, because the reason I asked you whether you just decided to start one day or whether it happened actually is because of what you said, which is I think these rituals, whatever they are, and maybe some people don't call them rituals, I do think they're so powerful, but it's hard sometimes to get started on them. Are there days when you just don't feel like swimming? Actually, no. <laughs> I mean, so I was in Portugal last week and the TMI, but they wanted me on the 7 a.m. shuttle and I kind of persisted and got them to open the pool at six. So I ended up swimming for only half an hour instead of the usual 50 minutes. And, you know, and I felt pretty crappy getting up that early and so forth and so on. But again, the swim was the proper start to the day. So no, it's more likely that I would, how do I say Two or three times a year, for whatever reason, the pool doesn't open. I'm on an overnight flight. So I'll probably miss two or three days a year. And in a sense, I want to prove to myself that I'm not addicted to it. <laughs> and you know, it's like I don't fall apart, but I really, I really miss it. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think it's such a good model of how to find whatever it is for any one person, just how to find that place of calm and and quiet, really. At least that's that's how I feel about running and dancing, which I, I do almost every day. And it's just like you, on days when I am not able to do it, I really miss it and I crave it almost, which is, is kind of interesting. Let's talk more about your decision-making because I, I think it's it's so interesting what you mentioned about just really deciding to do something or making figuring out how to do it. You've said that you've really made very few decisions where you sat down and thought about the pros and cons, but that it's more like, and this is, these are your words, it's more like discovering what you said, it's more like discovering what I've already decided. I just didn't know it yet. I just love that framework and that sense of curiosity and that you're following your internal sense of discovery. Was that something that you've done from the beginning or was that a kind of muscle that you had to learn how to use? It's not even, I don't know what it is. So when I was 12, I don't remember all the details, but student exchanges were in the air. You know, students were coming from Berlin or this was post-Cold World, post-Cold War, whatever. And I decided that I wanted to go live in London for a year. My, my dad was English and I somehow persuaded my parents that they should help organize this for me, like paying for the flights. And so I went to live for a year with some friends of my father's. And I don't know how I decided that, but, you know, clearly it was my idea and it, I made it happen. So I got this sense of agency or something. I also left school when I was 15 to go to college and I don't know, somehow I was thinking about this in preparation for this. There's something, those were not just decisions, but sort of making things happen. With decisions, one of the very best books is The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. The thing about decisions is when you make one, there's always the possibility of regret. And the way to think about a decision is not just is A or B better, but if I pick A and it doesn't work out, 
how much will I regret it versus if I pick B and it doesn't work out, how much will I regret it? And which is why I've never had my nose fixed because, you know, I may or may not like my nose, but I've got it. Whereas if I fix my nose, then I'm responsible for it. And if I don't like it, it's much worse because I regret the stupid mistake I made. So there's something there about a decision can be the right decision and still not turn out very well. But it, it was actually the best decision. There was a 10% risk it wouldn't turn out and that 10% happened, but you still made the right decision. Or I did space training in Russia and I paid on the order of 3 million for the space training. And then there was this lottery ticket attached, which was I would, I was back up to Charles Simone that I could have gone. But I paid for the space training. That's what I got. And I'm very happy the lottery ticket was sort of external. And, you know, I'm sorry I didn't get the lottery ticket, but I'm very happy that I got the space training and the six months experience in star suiting and so forth and so on. So with decisions, so often you really know what you want. You also know what you're willing to risk going wrong. And if you, if you quantify it, you end up, it's, you end up getting what you don't really want. And somehow, I don't know, I just find if I wait long enough, I'll know what I want. Sometimes it's pretty late in the game. And, you know, I, I try not to be annoying. And it's not like I cancel meetings 10 minutes advance or something, but Somehow, the calculus goes well beyond the pros and cons. It goes to the, did I approach this question in the right way? I know my own preferences. I know my own risk tolerance. And I know what I'm more likely to regret. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, somehow, there may also be a little bit of, Here's one of my favorite stories about luck and decisions. So I, two summers ago, I was walking down the street and there was some construction. So I went into the street, tripped on the construction, fell over, cracked my femur and uh, ended up with surgery and being in a walker and stuff for a month or two. So there, there are kind of two reactions to that. One is, oh my God, yeah, I tripped in the street and cracked my femur. I'm so unlucky. And the others, oh my God, I could have been killed. I could have been run over by a car. And all I did was end up cracking my femur. And I ended up spending a month at a friend's house with a swimming pool just outside of Boston. It was really wonderful. It's partly how you read stuff in retrospect. And mostly I feel I'm pretty lucky because. Something might have gone wrong, but it led to, hey, my life's pretty good. I'm alive. This thing didn't work out, but because it didn't work out, I'm now doing something else or whatever. And you need to compare what happened, not just to the best thing that could have happened, but also to the worst thing that could have happened. Mm -hmm. So the short answer is, you know, I can't think of any 
big life decision that I regret. And it's not because I didn't make mistakes or do stupid things, but because ultimately I'm pretty happy with my life. Why do you think that a pro-con list is one of the first things that most American children learn? Because I agree with you. I, I don't think that it necessarily leads to good decision-making. And if anything, I think we're probably relatively poor at predicting what the true pros and cons are. Like in the story you said, who would have thought you'd break your femur, right? You probably wouldn't have written that down in the con list. No. And likewise, you wouldn't have written in the pro list, if I get injured, I'll spend a month at a friend's, you know, and spending time with a friend and being in the pool. How do we get away from this mindset? And the reason I'm asking is because I think it's all of these things are connected in terms of changing the way that we think about how we live, changing the way that we think about the impact we have on others. If I ran the world, we'd have mandatory parent training. <laughs> Imagine how well that would go over in this political environment. Right? But, but it really, it really, it does start with babies and loving parents and you know, just a feeling of security, not of, you need challenges. Again, you need the ability to make mistakes, but to recover from the mistakes. And in a sense, it's the narratives you learn. Uh, another great story, TV interview, local banker, some town like Scranton. He says, yeah, my dad was an alcoholic. And I just knew from my earliest days that I was going to avoid the drink and become successful because it just gave me that drive to put my life in order and, and live a useful life serving the community. And then they interviewed the bum down the street who said, yeah, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and it's just like, what do you expect? I learned from him. I, I just couldn't stay off the sauce. And of course they were brothers. Wow. It's so, yes, it's what happens to you, but it's also how you process what happens to you and whether you feel you've learned from it or it's destroyed you. And I mean, I can sit here in my nice little recording booth telling you all these great things. And if you grow up with toxic parents, you can't just decide. It's in a sense, Instead of turtles all the way down, it's parents all the way up. Your parents weren't very great parents because their parents weren't. And somewhere we can interfere with troubled children and, and help them have one or two people who give them that sense of security and aspiration. And you can do it. It is You're not powerless here. So... It's a very social thing, but it's it's not like just passing a law. It's it's a lot more complicated. But clearly, good childcare, good schools, childcare both for the child and so that the parent can earn living and so forth and so on. Those are the things we're trying to help our communities do in their own communities. Yeah, it's well, and I think that the other thing that, that I find myself thinking about a lot is also just the way that our education system reinforces, I think, some patterns that are against growth or a growth mindset, if we can call that, or risk taking, where you learn from a very young age, really starting at five or even younger, depending on when you enter school and what school you're in, that if you take a risk and it doesn't work out, you will get a bad grade, for example. And that is reinforced basically all through. And then in addition to that, 
the result of getting good grades is you get admitted to a college of your choice. So you get a job that you wanted. And, and then at the end of all of that, we expect people to come out being really risk-seeking or growth-oriented, or like you said, even with the, with the mindset of kind of looking at everything from a much higher level and saying, okay, this was disappointing in what happened, or this was even really damaging in what happened, but I'm able to reframe it in a way that then is productive to my next step. Yeah. And it's not just school and it's, it's, it's not just taking risks. It's just taking action and feeling that your actions will result in something that you want and the ability to plan rather than that short term craving where you're craving for relief rather than for pleasure or for anything permanent. It's, it's just like, and it's the short-term mindset versus the building, investing mindset that you learn from the people around you. Let's talk a little bit about your investing and this decision-making model that you've been describing, or really, let's say, discovery as part of an essential part of the process, yeah. rather than pros and cons. How has that influenced your investing? It's probably very much, much of a piece. First of all, I keep telling people, you know, I'm not actually looking for deals. Enough of them show up. And that's, again, luck will find you if you're willing to be lucky. I mean, I'm certainly always curious. And I try very hard to tell people, look, I'm not rejecting you. I just don't have time even to consider you, which is often true. But first rule, I invest my own money. So if I make a mistake, in quotes, I don't need to apologize to somebody. And that's really important because it gives you the ability to, again, make those, if you like, internal implicit decisions. Second, I, I always invest for the education. And then in a sense, the stock is the lottery ticket. So I, I joined the board of 23andMe because I wanted to learn about genetics. And I did a lot of stuff in Russia because, again, I wanted to learn about Russia, whether it was space travel or just the emerging Russian IT economy. And in the case of Russia, my lottery ticket did not pay off. The stock market is now basically not operating. So you, you need to invest in enough things so the if you look at it overall economically, investing in venture capital brings net positive results. If you invest in enough things, you're probably going to do pretty well financially. So rather than picking for making the most money where my picks are likely not to be, I mean, so much of it is guessing. You really do not know in advance. But I do know that if I invest in a genetics company, with a CEO that I like, I'm going to learn a lot about genetics. Or so I invest in areas that I want to know more about. And I get enough lucky wins. But the the cost of each company is not a mistake. It's the cost of an education. So I get 10 slices of education and maybe one or two really good wins and one or two, mm, and then five that sort of disappear and I can't remember 
mm-hmm. how much I put in. But the, I mean, two things. One, you have to have enough capital just to do this. You can't, if you invest in only one or two companies, statistically, you're likely to lose all your money. And that second question is, you need an asset base to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And people talk about income inequality, but asset inequality is even worse because without assets, you simply cannot take the kind of risks I'm talking about. Even if the overall returns are likely to be pretty good, you don't have the ability to spread your risk enough for it to be reliable. Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I think things like Robin Hood are so just really bad for the public, honestly, because what they're fostering is not investing, but you know, trading and speculating and gambling for many people who really can't afford to do that. Are there ways that people who don't have the resources to formally invest can still take calculated risks in their lives to try to get some momentum around what you're describing, which is basically some of this is just a volume game. If you know that if you well, spread right enough bets, like how can people how can people start doing this even if they don't have that asset base? Well, I'm not sure that they should. I mean, it's up to them, but mm-hmm. the bigger question is, can you get a job that will give you the time and the money to get trained to get a better job? Mm-hmm. Can you find a relative so that you can move to a town where there are jobs? I mean, part, part of the problem right now is so many people are stuck and they don't, you need enough of an asset base to launch to get to the next level. And speculating is not the way to do it. I mean, the other problem with Robinhood is it creates no actual value. It creates money out of thin air for some lucky people, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't contribute to the general welfare. It might contribute to the GMP that might contribute to some people's pockets by creating money, but it doesn't close or feed anybody. It doesn't educate them. I mean, I'm overstating it, but it's just, there's room for a lot of, you know, we still need better food mm-hmm. and we need more caregivers. We need a lot of things that are much better ways for people to earn a good living. We should a good living. And again, we should subsidize childcare and mm-hmm. I think tax sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Working for levels. I have a very specific feel on, on sugar. Yes. No, it's interesting. One reason I asked about personal risk and different version of, versions of it is because I think it's interesting even when you think about what job are you taking? By almost definitionally, if you go to work for a startup, in some ways, I think we're, you're like, for example, by my joining a startup, I'm kind of defying in some ways your investing approach, which is I've now put the majority of my time, energy, resources into one company. Now, of course, it's different because arguably I have a role in, in the outcome of the company and I know the company very well. But in some sense, it's a sequential portfolio I'm building in terms of moving from job to job or hopefully I'll never leave right. levels. But but you're learning. I mean, again, you're investing in an education as mm-hmm. well as taking a job. Mm-hmm. And I have another you know, handy little motto, which is never take a job for which you are already qualified. So as long as you're being paid, and you're learning, you're getting something out of that. Because even if levels folded, you could go elsewhere and say, I have this experience, hire me. And they probably would. I hope so. 
I really like your approach around education and learning. And I'm curious, in addition to your work as an investor and what you've described as really building, and in some ways, as you were describing that, it almost sounds like when you invest, you know, you're going to learn. It's just some of the learning is more expensive than others, depending on what happens. Are there other things that you do in your day to day to really just make sure that you're not making the same mistakes twice and that you're constantly learning? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, I discovered something I didn't really know. I, I lived in the same apartment in New York City from 1972 to 2019. And what I didn't realize and now is obvious to me in retrospect was I lived at work and then I went home and slept at home. But it really was kind of like a giant bedroom and I was not much of a homekeeper and so forth and so on. Then I moved to a new apartment nearby and learned a ton, including, boy, was I lucky to be on the top floor because I'd never had a neighbor above me tramping around. Anyway, two months ago, I moved into kind of like almost 40 years in this one place, three years kind of learning and then realizing what it was that I really wanted, which is a nicer place with a swimming pool in the basement that opens at 6 a.m. every day of the week. and. I'm also beginning to, it's a really nice place and I'm now living there. Like I, I go home at five or 6 p.m. and then I sometimes work at home, but I, I live there in a way that I hadn't before. And I'm learning all kinds of stuff about, and this partly happened during COVID. I learned how to cook by trial and error. And I learn everything from, how the new washing machine works and just, and I'm kind of enjoying it. Half of me says, this takes so much stupid time. And the other half of me says, yes, but I'm learning things. And it's quite wonderful. And I love, yeah, one of my all-time favorite trip experiences was when a, tour guide slash interpreter in Tallinn, Estonia offered to take me to, she was a moonlighting dentist. She offered to take me to a museum. I said, I'd I'd really rather visit your dental clinic instead. I learned so much about how the economy worked. It was a, a government facility, of course. This was in 1989. They were advertising in Finland to get Finnish people to come down and pay hard currency for dental services. And they were going to start their own private dental clinic. And you get a sense of what's really going on in the economy and in people's minds from, you're just going backstage. It's always more interesting than watching the performance. I feel the same. I feel the same. And I want to make sure that we have more time to talk about Wellville. And I actually think this is connected to learning. I'm curious, have there been things that you've especially learned about what it takes to coach communities to create behavior change? I'd be curious, just what what has come out of that so far? Well, the first is you have to have people's trust and it takes years. We went to Niagara Falls, which was, which in the end did not, also did not work out. And a local pastor said, we know people like you. You come here and you spend a year or two and then you go away. We, we don't need your kind. And with varying degrees, 
there, there was, yeah, you know, we're kind of interested in what we think you're offering, but is there any money? And what do you really want out of us? But after, you know, it varies. After three, four years, they begin to trust you. And the good thing about us is we don't live there and we don't want their jobs. Mm -hmm. So every community has politics, but we're pretty, we're able to infiltrate pretty well without, without disrupting, if you like. So there, there's that. And that's why after, I'm not sure exactly when, I mean, again, this is one of these decisions that just emerged. Like, yeah, five years is not long enough. My stocks are doing well enough that I'm going to, I can commit to 10 years of my life and 10 years of funding for this thing. And that happened like the third or fourth year. I'm not sure, but it, again, it was a sort of slow decision. What we're learning now is thinking about succession planning and how to get the community to think about that too and sort of foster the next generation of people. You know, we originally thought it was going to be much more data-driven than it is. It really is so much about the culture. And, you know, you hope to see that reflected in the diabetes numbers and the smoking numbers and the incarcerations but that ultimately it takes more than 10 years because it is the earlier you go in somebody's life the easier it is to have an impact but and the longer it takes to see that impact so you know we're really hoping wellville will be over it will turn into some kind of a documentaries and stories and advocacy project but our friendships in the community will continue and so and i'll still be going there i'm also now on the board of a company in grand rapids which is the airport that basically serves muskegon so we certainly are looking at the numbers and they matter but we're much more looking at the systems and the the institutions that are being built and in the end, people are more persuaded by stories than by data anyway. And we, we want to have both. Trust is such an important thing. And it's something we think about a lot at levels, knowing that for the vast majority of people, their experience of whether it's people coming into the community or their interaction with the healthcare system, and I'm saying healthcare on purpose here, yes, right. that it has been in some ways negative and not in a trusting environment or structure. And so it's really undoing a lot of that in order to try to create that trust. And I, I so appreciate what you said about things just being slow. And I'm curious, and maybe you've answered this already, but when you think about when Wellville reaches the end of its 10 years, is there any specific thing where you say, okay, this was successful? Or is it like you said, it's really about the relationships that you've built and the things that have begun to change? Well, it won't be 100% successful. I mean. There's not a particular, were some persistent institutions built, were some relationships and collaborations established, net-net, do children grow up with better access to childcare, with better schools, do their parents 
get training so that they can have better jobs? Do people, you know, the, in a sense, if I had to interview one, one very small subset, I'd probably interview the real estate people and say, do people want to live here? Because people, again, some people might do pros and cons, but people make a decision to move in or move out. And I mean, many people don't have that decision, but net, net, is this a place where people want to raise their kids or do they desperately want to go somewhere else? When they're grown up, do they want to come back or do they want to get the hell out? And that's, if you had to measure one number, which of course is a hard number to measure anyway, but it would be that. It's sort of almost like the net promoter score for life in Muskegon. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond that, yeah, high school graduation rates, diabetes rates. Uh, do people trust the healthcare system? Do, are people healthy? What's the, you know, what are the county health rankings? Stuff like that. You had started an initiative of putting CGMs on kids. Yes, okay. I'm so curious what the outcome of that was. Yeah, well, of course it was, to some extent it was from levels, but even before levels, I I used to think, boy, you know, if, if I could, again, if, if I could run the world and do the mandatory parent training, I would also give every second grader a CGM so they could learn about metabolism. But I was at the Boys and Girls Club watching... It was really great. In the first room, they were giving book reports and talks and kids were presenting and other kids were listening and so forth. In the second room, they were doing art projects. And in the third room, they were listening to a healthcare video and falling asleep. I thought, there's got to be a better way. And so here and there, I would mention this idea and then Rick met somebody from Abbott and we started down the road of, could we do a study? Yeah, do it as a study so it would be funded, but work with the kids at the Boys and Girls Club and give them CGM so that they could analyze, so that they could learn about their bodies using their own data, which is so much more interesting than reading about it in a book or watching a boring video. And we wanted to do something that was, again, would help people learn from their own data. So we talked with Laura, who, bless them, were also interested. We are now in year zero, which started last September. We hope year zero will conclude by next September, and then we will start year one. But the thing that I love about this project is the kids get the rings, so do whatever staff at the Boys and Girls Club want one. And fortunately, quite a few of them do. It's great when the teachers and the kids learn together and so forth and so on. We are learning a lot about IRBs. The person running the project is a doctor who used to live in Muskegon and is now in Battle Creek, but comes back and knows a lot of the kids because she worked at the local FQHC. So the basic idea is Look at your own data and understand how your behavior affects your sleep. Understand how your sleep affects, it just, they all interact. Your sleep, your diet, your behavior, and your parents' behavior. You can't change your parents' behavior, but you can change how you react to it. Back to the, are you lucky or unlucky? It's, mm-hmm. 
compared to what? And the, so this is IRB terminology, Independent Review Board clinical study terminology. The primary outcome is not, can these kids sleep more or can they lose weight? And yeah, unfortunately, everybody assumes everybody wants to lose weight. And in many cases, that's true. But but what we are measuring is their sense of agency. In other words, these kids are often bullied, told what to do. But what we want to help them learn is you can make up your own mind. You can determine your own future. If you want to lose weight, you know how. But it's up to you to decide whether you want to. If you want to sleep more, this will help you know if you did it. But we're not telling you what to do. We're just helping you understand how your own body works. And by the way, we're also going to tell you about the metabolism of the food system, which runs on money, the way your body runs on nutrients. And I just, I love that. Now that will, we will have objective measures because this is a proper scientific study, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of one of my favorite projects, but it's not the essence of Wellville, which is much more about sort of general community things. On the other hand, it's, it's a real model for being self-aware, feeling a sense of agency, feeling in control and, and managing your own destiny. In many ways, this brings us back to where our conversation started, which is the power of asking questions. And I think it's it's really beautiful that you're taking that natural superpower of yours and you're really training the next generation in how to do that and what you learn when you do that and what that process is like. So I think there's really it's really an inspiring way of doing it. And I'll be so curious to follow the results of this and hopefully one day to get CGMs on them as well and see what the results of that are. Absolutely.